Today's reading is Luke 13, 10 through 21. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by the Spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leaders said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all the opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace kids, first through fifth, you are headed to the lobby to find your teachers. The rest of you, you may be seated. Good morning, Grace. Uh, I said this in our pre-service meeting, just a burden that I have. Uh, Dodger Nation, as a fan of the other LA team who has no postseason wins this season, I feel your pain. I'm here to process if you want to talk it through, all right? Okay, I didn't get booed. That's what I was kind of nervous about. Anyway, now that I've alienated about 98% of you, Let's get into scripture together, shall we? Um, Okay, changing gears. Here's a question for you. What comes to mind when you hear the word kingdom? What's what's the mental picture in your mind as you hear that word kingdom? Now, you know me well enough to probably know immediately what comes to my mind, and yes, it is the Magic Kingdom. In fact, uh, I spent a lot of money this summer to go to the Magic Kingdom, and it was very magical and very, very hot. All right, that's what, co- that's what my mind goes to. Uh, for some of you, maybe those of you in the, uh, the video game community, your mind doesn't go to the Magic Kingdom, but the Mushroom Kingdom. You know, Mario, Bowser, Goombas, Koopas, all those. Maybe that's where your mind goes. Uh, for our, our world travelers, maybe your mind goes to the United Kingdom, to Buckingham Palace. That's what you're thinking of. And the list goes on and on, right? Kingdom of Narnia, Kingdom of Elves, Kingdom of Men. The point is, 
When we hear the word kingdom, our mind goes to something, right? We think of something. And that's true for Jesus as well. In fact, uh, if you read the Bible, specifically if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of of Jesus' life, you'll see that over and over and over again, he is talking about a kingdom. But when Jesus talks about a kingdom, his mind is not going to uh, the mushroom kingdom, certainly not, not the magic kingdom, not even the united kingdom. It's going to the kingdom of God. Some translations, the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom that Jesus is the king over. It's the kingdom that he is bringing. That's what Jesus thinks about when he hears the word kingdom. And the passage that we're going to be in today in Luke chapter 13, it is all about, I'm convinced, it's all about this idea of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And it helps us to understand how we should picture, what we should think about when we hear that phrase, kingdom of God. Specifically, there's two things. Normally you get a three-point sermon, it's just two today. Can I get an amen? It's going to be just as long though, so don't even. All right. Two things come to mind for Jesus that we'll see about the kingdom. First is the promise of the kingdom, and second is the posture of the kingdom. The promise of the kingdom, the posture of the kingdom. That's what we'll see today. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. It'll be on the screen as well as we go through it. Um, We'll be in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21 today. Uh, But I do want to say, so there's kind of two clear movements to our, our passage. So there's a healing story, and then Jesus tells a couple parables. Right. Both of them have to do with the kingdom, but there's sort of two movements. We're not really going to spend much time on the parable portion. Okay, we're not going to look very long at verses 18 through 21. Uh, and, and that's not because it's irrelevant. It's extreme, extremely relevant. Jesus literally is talking about the kingdom. I just think it's a little bit more straightforward. I mean, he literally says, here's how I picture the kingdom. So I'll let you read that on your own. Just a couple quick comments, though, about, look at verse 18 through 21. So he, Jesus, said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, Yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures, or like we heard today, 60 pounds of flour until it all, it was all leavened. Real quick, here's Jesus' point, is that the kingdom as he thinks about it is both what you expect and not what you expect. Because when we hear kingdom, we think of power, A castle, moats, you know, knights with their swords drawn, power, influence. And Jesus says, that's totally right. In fact, it's more powerful than you could imagine. He says, it's like a tree that the birds of the air, all the birds come to this tree. And I won't get into all the scholarly conversation, but this is an allusion to the nations of the world. He's saying, my kingdom will be a kingdom for all people. 
Right? Kingdoms serve one area, not Jesus' kingdom. It's for all people. And earthly kingdoms have a, a sphere of influence. Right? They influence an area, some people. But Jesus says, like yeast that goes into 60 pounds of dough and fills the whole thing, my kingdom's going to fill the whole world. It'll influence the whole world. So if you think of a kingdom as something powerful, something influential, you're right. More than you could even imagine. But you're also wrong in a way because it's not going to start that way. Verse 19, he says it's like a grain of mustard seed, an absolutely tiny seed, almost invisible, totally insignificant. He says it's like yeast that a woman took and hid. Okay, you don't see yeast once it goes into the, do the dough. Again, it's, it's invisible, it's hidden, it seems insignificant. And so he says, while there will be a day where my kingdom will be unimaginably powerful and significant, it's not going to look that way quite yet. And that's helpful for us to know. Because when we hear kingdom, we might immediately jump to the last part. But he's saying, no, it's not going to start that way. Now, I could say a lot more. In fact, I had a whole other 15-minute point. Um, but my dog overheard me preaching it and said, Jake, it's too long. Cut it. So I'm going to cut it. Uh, and we're just, we're going to go back up to the healing story. But one more thing. This is, this is important. Verse 18. Notice it says, talking about Jesus, remember this is after the healing story. It said, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? Now, anytime you're reading the Bible and you come across the word, therefore, you should always ask, what just came before? Right? Nobody starts a conversation by saying, therefore, I'm going to go to the store today. Right? That'd be totally weird. Like, what do you mean, therefore? Something had to happen before. And so that's important because what Luke is saying is, look, this healing story, the argument that Jesus has with a religious leader, that's what makes him think about the kingdom. Something happens in this story that makes Jesus go kingdom of God. Specifically, there's two things again. I think this story illustrates the promise of the kingdom and the posture of the kingdom. So let's look at it together. Uh, jump back to verse 10. Let's look first at how do we see here the promise of the kingdom? Verse 10 says this, Now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Okay, pause there. Because what Luke is doing here is something very intentional, very uh, artistic, masterful. He's trying to draw our minds back to something that happened before. And if you have a horrible memory like me, you're like, well, it's totally lost on me. No shame. Let's look at it together, okay? Because when, when Luke says Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, he's trying to draw our mind back to the first time he records Jesus teaching in a synagogue on a Sabbath. If you have a Bible open, flip back to Luke chapter 4. 
Specifically, we'll, we'll start in verse 16. Because what we see in, in Luke 4 is more or less Jesus kicking off his public ministry. It's a passage about Jesus starting his kingdom campaign, so to speak. And he does it by making a pretty massive promise. Luke 4, 16, it says this, And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, listen to this, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, to teach. Okay, these two things are linked. Now look at the promise that he makes. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Here's the promise Jesus is making. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that's a big promise. Jesus is saying, I'm starting my kingdom campaign, and here's the promise of my kingdom. Good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. The good news that God is for you and with you. That's a massive promise. It's the promise of the kingdom. Now jump back to Luke chapter 13. Because again now, we see Jesus teaching in one of the synagogues on a Sabbath day. And what Luke wants us to do is say, oh yeah, I remember him doing that before. He made that absolutely insane promise. Is it true? Look at verse 11. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Notice the wording there. He says, woman, you are freed. Remember what he promised before? He said, liberty to the captives, freedom for those who are oppressed. And now we see again in a synagogue on a Sabbath day, Jesus is fulfilling that promise. Someone literally in captivity captivated in her body, Jesus frees her. Luke is saying, here's the good news. Jesus is following through on the lofty promise that he made. And if you want proof, just ask this woman. Later on, Jesus says she was bound by Satan, oppressed, captivated for 18 years. And now she's free. 
Again, the good news that Luke is trying to draw our attention to here is that there is a promise to Jesus' kingdom. And it's a promise that he follows through on. And it's good news because this, okay, more than the mushroom kingdom, more than the magic kingdom even, this is the type of kingdom that we long for. A kingdom where captives are set free. The blind receive their sight. In fact, Scripture uses other words, additional words, to talk about this promise. One of my favorite comes in Revelation 21. John, the apostle, he's seeing the promise of this kingdom fully fulfilled. And here's how he says it. He says, this is the words he's overhearing. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The year of the Lord's favor. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. There's a massive promise to this kingdom that Jesus brings. It's the promise that every fairy tale ends with that we so long for, happily ever after. And Jesus is saying, in me, it's true. Just look at this woman. That's good news. It's the gospel. But here's the complication for us. We live in a world with so many broken promises, don't we? From politicians all the way down to parents. Sorry, parents, it's true. Uh, we grow up learning authority figures do not keep the promises that they make. And so we can hear this and say, well, yeah, that, that sounds great, but I'm not too sure, Jesus. That, that sounds too good to be true. And what we learn as people is if something sounds too good to be true, it is. If any of you got a phone call, you picked it up and it said, congratulations, you've just won a free two-week cruise around the Mediterranean. All we need is your credit card number. None of you, I hope none of you, would say, that's too good to be true. Yes, here's my credit card number. In fact, here's my social security card. When do we leave? No. What would you do? You'd hang up. Why? Because it's too good to be true. And we've learned if something's too good to be true, it is. And unfortunately, we can even then take that posture towards the promise of the kingdom. The promise of the world where captives are set free, where the blind receive their sight, the poor have good news preached to them, no more crying, no more death. That's great, Jesus. It's too good to be true. And Grace family, I think there are reasons, especially in our church, why we might have that flinch. Because here's the hard truth. There have been times where we've prayed for the kingdom to come 
and it has not shown up in the way we wanted it or needed it. For some of you, you've prayed, God, let your kingdom come into this relationship that so desperately needs restoration. Please. And it's more fractured than it was before. Some of you have played, prayed, God, please let the kingdom come. Heal me. Help me work through this trauma that I'm under. And it's only worse than it was before. And Grace family, I know we have prayed, God, please let your kingdom come in this person's body. Heal them. And some of them aren't with us anymore. The thing is, there are things that happen in this world that make us say, that promise is too good to be true. And I understand that. I think Jesus does too. Here's the thing, even in spite of that, Christians are people who hold hope in the promise. Look at this woman, okay? She was bent over. She had had this condition for 18 years. Students, that is longer than most of you have even been alive. I mean, just imagine for a moment how many nights she went to bed crying, crying out to God, heal me, Lord. And it felt like there was no answer. When Jesus saw her and called her forward, probably at the very back of the synagogue, me, she's calling me, she would have had more than anyone there a reason to say, that's okay. I appreciate that you've seen me. I appreciate you want to help me. I've been prayed over before. I've been a part of a prayer gathering before. I've cried out to God. It's not going to happen. But thank you, Jesus, for seeing me all the same. But that's not what she does. She gets up. She walks to him. And Jesus said, woman, you are set free. And he lays his hands on her, and immediately she stands up straight once again. Because she kept the hope of the promise of the kingdom alive. Despite all odds, despite everything that would say it's too good to be true, she hoped. She hoped against hope, and the promise came true. It makes me think of the Cubs. Any Chicago Cubs fans out there? All right, all right, a few people. Um, here's the thing. The Cubs won the World Series in 2016. Now, somebody wins the World Series every year, so it's not like, is that that big of a deal? Yes, it was that big of a deal. Why? Because it had been 108 years since they had last won a World Series. Two world wars had happened since they had last won a World Series. None of you were alive the last time they... This church was barely here, Right? It had been a long time. And in fact, it became such a long time, and often their losses came in such bizarre and spectacular fashions that people said, there's a curse. There's a curse on that team. They will never again win a World Series. The promise that the Cubs made every year, we're going to win it. So many people, I can only imagine, so many Cubs fans over that 108-year span so that's too good to be true. 
there's a curse. That promise won't be kept. I'm not going to get my hopes up again in April just to be let down in September. And I can only imagine so many Cubs fans left over the years. It's too good to be true. I'm not going to allow myself to be disappointed. But they won. I believe it was a November night. It was a cold November night, 2016. Chris Bryant, he fired the final pitch to Anthony Rizzo at first base, and the Cubs won. And Chicago, all of Chicago, celebrated. But it's the type of celebration that can only come after 108 years of waiting. I mean, when the Yankees win, it's not that big of a deal. They win every other year. But the Cubs, people had to wait 108 years for this. That's a unique joy. That's a joy that only comes if your hope has been kept alive against all odds. It's the hope of the promise of the kingdom. And Christians, we are people marked by that same hope. And we understand, though, like this woman, that the promise of the kingdom might take 18 years. In fact, it might take 108 years. It might take 1,008 years. Some of us are going to go to our graves with that hope, believing that the next time I open my eyes, the Cubs will have won the World Series. <laughs> when I open my eyes again, the kingdom will be before me. Set free, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. It's the promise of the kingdom. Here's my encouragement, is for all of us in one way or another, it is hard to keep that hope alive. All of us live in a world that is broken, um, a world where we do experience things like sickness and crying and death and captivity, and so there are areas somewhere in your life where the kingdom seems the most dissonant, where this promise sounds like the, the call that says, you want to cruise. And so rather than ignoring that, here's my encouragement, is find where that is in your life. Where does the kingdom seem the most impossible, improbable, can't be? Find it. And then find a brother or sister in Christ whom you love, whom you trust, uh, who knows your story, and ask them to hold hope with you. One of the beautiful things is God does not call us to hold hope alone. If the Cubs fan base had been one fan, never would have lasted 108 years, right? We need a community to hold hope. And so find someone in this community, in your family here at Grace, who can help you hold hope in the promise of the kingdom. Because it's a promise that's true. Don't give up. There's a second thing here, though. There's a promise of the kingdom, but there's also a posture of the kingdom. In fact, in order to even need the promise of the kingdom requires a certain type of posture. In fact, there's two postures in this text. One of them is the posture of the kingdom. One of them isn't. Posture number one is the posture of the woman. Uh, verse 11, about halfway through. Luke literally tells us her physical posture. He says she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. 
Okay, so you can picture this woman. Some of you got out of bed looking like this this morning, right? She's bent over. She can't fully straighten herself. Amen. (laughs) Good news for you, Dan. Yeah, just keep listening. All right, she's bent over. She can't fully straighten herself. That's her physical posture. It's also her social posture. Because what we know is in this day and time, if you had some sort of uh, outward, obvious chronic illness or chronic disability, you were immediately on the margins of society. You are invisible. Uh, Worse than that, you're actually avoided. So this woman's posture in a word, her, her life is a life of shame. And think about the physical posture of shame. It's the same. Isn't it? Back bent down, shoulder slumped, face to the ground. Her whole life is that posture. And then she meets Jesus. Verse 11. I love this. When Jesus saw her, someone who was invisible to her community, Jesus sees her. He called her over. Someone who others avoided, pushed away, he calls to himself. And he said to her, woman, you are freed, released, liberated from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. She stands up straight, and she glorified God. Just imagine that scene. You know, some of you watch, like, the YouTube videos where chiropractors, like, crack people's backs. I mean, just imagine the sound after 18 years as she stands up again. Literally, physically, she stands tall. But socially, she stands tall again, too. At verse 17, at the very end, it says, All the people rejoiced. A woman who had been scorned by her community is now celebrated by her community. She stands tall again, restored. And and Luke doesn't say what her relationship with God was like before this. We don't know. But I, I find it interesting End of verse 13, it says, she glorified God. Her hands are raised up in worship. Restored also to God. She starts out like this, hunched over all aspects of life, and after Jesus enters her life, she stands tall again. All aspects of life, and after Jesus enters her life, she stands tall again. And there's a second posture, and it's the exact opposite. And we see it in the religious leader, the ruler of the synagogue. Verse 14, it says, But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, angry, like when you get cut off on the 405, that type of anger, angry because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The, the synagogue, the churchy building of this time, it was the center of the Jewish village. And this man is the center of the synagogue. So whereas the woman is the outermost fringes of her society, this man stands in the middle. And it says he's a, he's a keeper of the Sabbath, a stickler for the Sabbath. Jewish identity at this time was wrapped up in doing a few things well, and one of them was you did not work on Saturday. No work. And there were rules and rules and rules to specify what work is and what it wasn't, and he keeps them perfectly. 
In fact, he keeps them so well, he tries to tell Jesus how to keep the Sabbath day. The woman is bent over. This man stands tall, proud, chest puffed out. Don't you see it? That's his posture. And then he meets Jesus. Verse 15, then the Lord answered him, him and those like him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed, liberated, freed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Look at verse 17. As he said these things, all his adversaries were what? Put to shame. He stands tall, proud, chest puffed out, and then he has an encounter of Jesus, and now what's his posture? Shame. He's now the one bent over, shoulders slumped, face to the ground. I mean, this is literally a fulfillment of what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 12, again, talking about the kingdom, whoever exalts himself, stands tall, will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The posture of the kingdom is not found in the person who comes to Jesus upright, telling him what to do. No, it's the person who comes humbled to him, bent over, knowing that they need help. The promise of the kingdom is for whoever will claim it, but it requires a certain posture to even need the promise of the kingdom. Think back to, to Luke 4. Who is the promise for? It's for the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed, the sick, the needy. It's for people who recognize, I need help, and only you can give that to me, Jesus. Here's the problem, though. We don't like needing help. I don't like needing help, and you don't like needing help either. I had some uh, major card troubles in the last few weeks, and I had to spend a lot of time on the phone with Geico. And you know when you talk to your insurance, they like first send you to a robot, which don't we all just love that? Oh, we all just want to talk to a robot, right? And you have to jump through all these hoops to talk to a human. And here's the incredibly cruel thing that Geico does, is a little robot lady says to you, if you would like to speak to a human representative, just say, here's what they make you say, I need help. Now, I had to call Geico over and over and over again. So I had to get to this point in the conversation over and over and over again. And every single time, I hated it. In fact, and I'm not kidding here, every time I got to this point in the conversation, someone always walked by me. Sometimes it was someone I knew. Sometimes it was someone I didn't know. Made no difference. I did not want anybody to hear me saying, I need help. And so I'd kind of be like, I need help. I'm sorry, I didn't get that. Oh, right? No, it's, it was aggravating. Why? Because we don't like needing help. Not from Geico and not from Jesus either. And we do everything in our power to try to convince ourselves we don't need help. We're not bent over. We stand straight and tall and proud. Look, the man did it through religion. 
I keep the Sabbath so well, I can walk with my back up straight. I've never stood up this straight on the stage. I should more often. Um, I stand up straight and tall. And Jesus, you need my help. Let me tell you how the Sabbath works. He uses religion to convince himself, I don't need help. And for some of us, we use religion to convince ourselves, we don't need help. We can stand straight. I mean, the irony is, we can use Christianity to push Christ away. It's called moralism. I can live so well, God needs me on his team. I don't need him. For others of us, probably a lot of us, it's work. Work is a good thing. We can glorify God through good work, but it's also a huge kingdom liability because it's so easy to say, you want proof I don't need help? Look at my company. Look how much money we've made. You want proof I can stand tall and straight? Look at what was written about me in my performance review this year. You want proof that that I have nothing to be ashamed of, that, that I can stand tall and proud? Look how much money is in my bank account. And students, I know a lot of you don't work, but school functions in a very similar way. You want proof that I have my life all together? Look how many points my GPA is above 4.0. Look how many fives I got on the AP test. Look how many goals I kicked on the soccer field. Look at the varsity teams that I'm on. I can stand tall and proud. For a lot of us, it's probably social standing. You want proof my life's all together? Look at my Instagram. Look how many likes I get. Look at the type of people who like my photos. You want proof I don't need help? Look at what's on my feed. Parents, you can do this with your kids. You want proof I have life all together? Look at the school my kid got into. Look at how many times they were student of the month. Look at all the programs they do and how they excel at them. Romantic partners, look at my trophy wife, look at my trophy husband. The list goes on and on and on. The point is, we're so good, like the ruler of the synagogue, at finding things and saying, you want proof I don't need help? You want proof I'm not bent over but I stand tall? Just look at this. But grace, the posture of the kingdom is not the posture of someone who stands tall and straight and proud and says, Jesus, you need me. No. It's someone who needs Jesus. It's the posture of the woman, the posture of someone who is low, humbled, someone who needs help. And that's the type of people we want to be. Two super quick ideas here. I think a great way to take this posture is to literally take this posture. Um, I'm just, prayer hits different when you are down on your knees praying. It's true. Nothing reminds you of the fact that, you know what, I'm not the ruler of the synagogue. I'm the woman then saying, when I pray to you, God, I need to get down on my hands and knees. And so whatever that thing is in your life that, you know, that's the thing that you look towards to to solidify your identity, find it, get down on your hands and knees and present it to Jesus. Second thing is if you're like, well, I'm not sure what in my life is the thing that I use to try to convince myself, I don't need help. 
I'm not a therapist or psychologist, so maybe this is bad advice, but here's how it works in my life. Find the things that you get jealous over. Because chances are the thing that you are most jealous, why did he get that? Why did she get that? It's showing something that's an idol in your life. Right? Why did the ruler get so indignant? Because the Sabbath was everything to him, and Jesus challenged it. So find the things you get jealous about, angry, get down on your hands and knees, and present it to the Lord. God, I need you even in this. I want to end by saying this. Um, it's hard to take the posture of the kingdom. I love that picture. It's hard because everything in our world says no. Be self-reliant. Stand tall. Be proud. Our culture loves that message. And so it can be hard for us to say, well, why then? Why should I take a posture of humility? And here's the amazing answer. The amazing answer that only Christianity offers the posture of somebody who is humbled, someone who's low, it's not just the posture of the subjects of the kingdom. It's the posture of the king. Philippians says this. It says, Jesus was in the form of God. John 1, Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. If there was anybody who had the right to stand tall and straight and proud, it's Jesus. No matter how well you do at work, you are not God. He is God. He has every right to stand tall and proud and, and straight up. But does he? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Remember that the parable, the mustard seed so small, the yeast so small, so insignificant, so invisible, the Lord of the universe became a baby. Small, insignificant. He lived his life as a carpenter in a backwater town, irrelevant, invisible. But it's more than that. He got even lower. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. You want to talk about shame? There was no more shameful thing than the cross. It was the execution of a horrible person, a rebel. And that's the death that he took. And on the cross, he breathed his last. His back slumped forward. His shoulders slumped to the ground. His face fell. That's the posture of our king. And the question is, why? Why would a king take that posture? It's because he wants to lift yours. 
The text continues. It says, Jesus didn't stay slumped over. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Humble yourself and you'll be exalted. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God raises Jesus up and you with him. Ephesians 2.6, God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Don't you see this woman's posture of standing up straight? It's only a tiny glimpse, a tiny reality of the way that Jesus lifts us up because he took that posture first. And so Grace Family, here's what I want to say is if you have never come to Jesus before or if you have before but again you find yourself in a posture standing tall and straight and proud, my encouragement today is humble yourself. Do what Jesus did. Acknowledge, no, I'm not the ruler of the synagogue. I'm the woman. I need help. Understand that the promise of the kingdom is for you. And all it takes is, like this woman, to get up when Jesus calls you and to come to him. Thanks be to God. Band, you can come up on stage. Uh, we're going to go into a time of communion. And how perfect, because communion is an exact picture of what this passage is. To come to the communion table, you have to acknowledge first that you need it that you needed God's body to be broken, his blood shed for you. And in humility, we come to the table knowing that through it, through this meal, Jesus gives us life. So servers, you can come forward. Uh, in a moment, you will be dismissed from your rows. We encourage you to come to the table to take the elements back to your seat uh, and wait until we take them together. The juice is in the purple cups. The wine is in the clear cups. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into communion together. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that we have a king whose posture is one of humility so that he can lift ours. And so, God, I pray that you would break hearts in this, in this room today, all of ours, that you'd remind us that we need you. There's no good that we can do that gets rid of our need for you. I pray you would break us in the most loving way as we come to the table. But break us so that we can be restored. Help us to place our trust in you, Jesus. Amen.